This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Today by Dr. Michael Butler, who is here with us. He is the Keenan Distinguished Professor of History at Flagler College, uh, where he focuses on civil rights, Southern, and cultural history. He's also the author of the book Beyond Integration. Dr. Butler, it is a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Lori, it is my pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. And um, I look forward to the conversation about these issues that, uh, as you said, I've encountered up close and personal over the past few days. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, from my understanding, and, and this is all because of Twitter, so never let it be said that nothing good happens on social media. Uh, you had shared right. on Twitter that you were intended to be the lead scholar for the National Council for History Education seminar on the long civil rights movement. This was a presentation for teachers that was taking place in Osceola County. Uh, and then everything went well until it did not. What happened with that presentation and how is it that you ended up with this massive Twitter thread about this experience? Well, part of the Twitter thread was to publicize what's happening at the ground level for teachers who are interested in relaying content to their students, particularly as we go into Black History Month. Mm. Um, you know, one of the, the, the biggest honors that I can receive as uh, someone who is within the academy is the opportunity to train our teachers, to help teach our teachers. And this particular group was a group of 40-plus K-8th through eighth grade teachers in this county um, who had been part of a cohort for a couple of years now. They've gone through a variety of different topics. NCHE is great. It's a national organization that is dedicated to the teaching of historical fact and providing our teachers with the tools in which to do so. So um, I was excited. I've, I've done this before. It has never been seen as quote-unquote controversial. Um, we, I was asked in October to be the lead scholar. I've been planning it with uh, a, a master teacher, as they call them in the district, uh, since – goodness, uh, uh, November, I was supposed to give three presentations to the group this past Saturday, or, or I guess the Saturday before now, uh, on the 22nd of January, and I received the email from our NCHE representative on Wednesday evening that it had in fact been canceled, and the reason that it had been canceled was because the county saw the title and said that it, quote, raises red flags with uh, the teaching of potentially teaching CRT in this training session. Now, this is always curious to me because I, when I was in law school, I actually did take uh, classes taught by people who were experts in critical race theory. You know, Derek Bell was one of my great professors, and he is classic CRT. If, if you're going to point some, at somebody and say, who embodies critical race theory? He, uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, these are the folks who would embody that, I think, in the more proper context. But it doesn't Absolutely. sound to me, the, the way you described what you were going to be teaching, it doesn't feel to me like you were going to be talking 
talking about uh, a legal theory of any sort that was looking at how racism is able to persist in spite of the fact that we have laws against it. Uh, am I wrong about that? Is that what you were going to be talking about? It felt to me like you were going to be talking more about actual historical content. Is that correct? You are absolutely correct. Um, there was going to be no mention of CRT. There was no mention of Professor Bell, who is, as you noted, the father of CRT. Um, to my knowledge, CRT is not taught in any public school from the K through 12 level in the entire state of Florida. Um, and I've heard that from a number of teachers. This simply had to do with the teaching of historical fact. The seminar title Lurie, was the long civil rights movement, as you said. And basically what I do is inform the teachers that the civil rights movement does not begin nor end with Dr. King. Dr. King mm -hmm. is the seminal figure in understanding the movement from a popular perspective, right? But in the field, we have to educate people that the movement did not begin with the Montgomery bus boycott. It did not mm -hmm. begin with uh, Dr. King's birth, that, you know, as the freedom song goes, freedom is a constant struggle. As long as there has been racism, there has been resistance to that racism. Mm -hmm. So for the perspective of the the teachers, and these weren't students I was teaching either. These these are teachers. I want to, you know, reiterate that for, for your audience. Um, I was going to start in 1896. 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, as you know, this is the codification of legalized segregation. This is what the movement responded to. It responded to the legal separation of whites and blacks in areas of public accommodation. Now, on top of that, I was also going to give a little bit of background about the Florida Constitution of 1885, voter disqualification, poll taxes, you know, given the context. Yeah. The context that existed in this country as the 19th century turned into the 20th. And for that first presentation, which was the long civil rights movement, I was going to take it all the way through the end of World War II, the Double V program, mm. and, and really how this emphasis on victory against Nazism abroad and Jim Crow at home mobilized the freedom struggle. Um, so that was the first part. The, the, the middle lecture uh, was – the, the master narrative, and, and the master narrative is what uh, most Americans understand about the civil rights movement. It is the uh, Montgomery to Memphis timeline, right, mm. 1955 to 1968, where I kind of go through, for the teachers, the, for lack of a better term, the, the greatest hits of the movement, right? <laughs> Montgomery and Little Rock and Greensboro, North Carolina and Birmingham and Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and Selma. Um, my final section, the, the third of three, is was titled The Movement Continues, dot, dot, dot. Mm. You know, intentionally to reemphasize that the movement does not end with Dr. King's death. As a matter of fact, the movement began to change in 1965 with the, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. It is simply put, with the struggle for legalized segregation over Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, the movement evolves. Mm -hmm. The movement changes. The movement shifted from de jure segregation to more de facto. In other words, practices, habits. Um, and, uh, you know, my own research in Pensacola really it was part of that. Um, 
I was going to show that Dr. King is dealing with what struggling against housing discrimination looks like, um, how the civil rights movement addressed uh, the urban unrest that began with the Watts. Well, that, that really picked up steam in the 60s with Watts. Mm. But it goes into the 1970s, and Pensacola was really my case study to say, hey, look what's going on in this Florida city. We have literal demonstrations against Confederate images in public right. schools and police brutality. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we those wars are over, right? Mm. So the whole <laughs> idea that the movement doesn't end, that it shifts, and it shifts – to more of the consequences of and continued practices, I think is really important in helping teachers understand how the past informs the present in terms of some of the issues that we still have not addressed today. Mm. You, I, I feel like I should sign up for your class uh, because I would love to hear every single part of, of that lecture uh, and, and sit in that program. And, you know, as someone who I myself have, have had a lot of success working with educators to prepare them for how to show up right. in diverse classrooms. And, and one of the reasons, Dr. Butler, this has been important to myself and a number of the colleagues that I work with is that most educators do not have to take any real, uh, don't have to spend a whole lot of preparation time or time in their graduate programs really preparing for what it is to show up in a diverse classroom. Most of them take uh, a teacher certification program that is going to train them to teach an ideal student, and nine times out of ten, that student does not look like me, uh, did not have the same experiences that I did, and did not come into the school building with the same history. Uh, you know, I, one of the things we will point uh, our educators to is the idea that when those children from the Little Rock Nine we're finally going into the school and they're navigating those crowds of people around them who are hurling, you know, physical objects and including, uh, you know, like rocks and, and, and rotten fruit and all the things that we sort of think about popularly when we think about that moment. But we often stop and focus on the people who were outside of the building. We don't often think about the training that the educators who were inside the building had, if any, to prepare them for that moment. Were they going to be diversifying their curriculum as opposed to the one that they had been using for decades beforehand that focused on the primacy of white people and their history? Were they going to think about how to more effectively incorporate the history of their new black students? Was there any expectation that they would do so? And for a lot of folks, you know, the expectation was not. The expectation was that black and non-white children would assimilate, that they would uh, adjust and that they would become more like the white students that uh, were there before them, similar to what we saw with the indigenous communities, with the Indian schools. Uh, you either assimilate or you were exterminated. Can you talk That's with right. us about how what happened in 1896 and what you see happening today in 2022 are actually really two parts of the same puzzle? And, and for educators who are trying to show up effectively today, what is the risk of not having access to the information like the type you were going to share at these presentations? Well, I think the risk of not having access to the material that, that I intended to share, Lurie, is that we continue to perpetuate the wrongs of the past. We don't know what we don't know, right? And, you know, that informs my teaching. Um, you absolutely nailed it when you talked about diversification within the classroom. In many of the interviews that I've done, many of the interviews that I've listened to with the people who actually integrated the schools, it's not the crowds of hostile, angry white people that they most remember. It's seemingly innocuous comments that their teachers have made that hurt worse 
They didn't expect that from their teachers, and they got it. And that's what lasts. Um, yeah, it is two sides of the same coin, um, pieces of the same puzzle. I, I think back to my own experience. You know, I've as, as I look back, I came of age in the first generation in Mobile County, Alabama, that really experienced integration from the time they entered elementary school. Right? We think that uh, Little Rock, or we think that Brown. Uh, we think that busing really achieved equality, and it didn't. It, it, governments, school boards at both the state level and the local level, they resisted integration. So you don't have real meaningful integration until the early 1980s in many parts of the country. Wow. So um, starting the, the integration process, as I look back on my, my own experience as a young white kid from a working-class family uh, in Mobile, Alabama doing this, I didn't realize quite the the historical impact, and trust me when I say that the teachers, white and black, did not teach civil rights history at all mm. in those schools. I, when I was accepted into graduate school, that's really when I was first exposed to what the movement was about. And when we talk about uh, you know two pieces of the same puzzle. Students today are still having that experience. The, the greatest both frustration and joy that I have, Lurie, is when a student is exposed to someone like Emmett Hill or mm. is exposed to the St. Augustine Civil Rights Movement here in our very backyard for the first time. And their question is – well, their comment is usually, I had no idea. Right. And the question is, why didn't we know more about this topic? It explains so much. It helps us understand who we are. So, you know, that to me is the importance of this material. It does lead to diversification in the classroom, if not in the composition, at least in terms of the material we're learning, because this is history from a perspective that if you are not within that that group, you, you really don't think about it. You don't think about the consequences of segregation. You don't think about how to um, learn history from an empathetic points of view. Uh, you don't understand that this nation's struggle is a constant struggle. It's not a matter of we've arrived or we made it, right? It's just mm. history is our history. It belongs to all of us because it's made us who we are. And it informs who we think we are to this very day. Mm. Dr. Butler, how did you how did you become uh, the person of your character uh, who is engaged in this area? You do not, at least from your pictures, look to be a person of African descent. What was so unique about your learning experience that you are uh, who you are today, and particularly as it relates to this topic? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I. I Loved history. I've always loved history, and I knew that the region in which I was reared was was different. It was unique, and I didn't quite understand it, but I, I had a, an intellectual curiosity. Um, so I wanted to do 20th century American history with an emphasis on the South, and as I got to the University of Mississippi, a place that cannot hide from its history, by the way, I learned real fast in the history program that you cannot understand the contemporary South, and I would argue you can't understand modern America without understanding the centrality of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. It is the quintessential American struggle 
that most of us know little about. And, you know, the idea that in this country we could have denied people what the Constitution provides just because of their race, that is one of the most un-American stories in you know, our telling of the, the nation's history as a whole. So I was struck initially, Larry, by how much I didn't know. And the more I learned about how people, not just from the top down, right, organizations and great figures and Supreme Court justices and lawyers, how legislators and politicians fought for legal rights, but how the people at the grassroots level – People whose names will never appear in history books are the reasons that we have the legislation and we have the movements and we have the the great figures in this history bring about social change. So, you know, people among us made history. I had no idea. I had no idea how it fit into the overall picture of America his, American history. And, you know, the more I learned the more fascinating I, I was, the more fascinated I was with this history, and the more I wanted to educate myself to the point that you know I, I wrote a dissertation on the civil rights movement in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, Pensacola, Florida, and it just went from there. And mm. I really dedicated a career to using my position to ensure that students who looked like me, sounded like me, would never think that this history was somebody else's, that it's your history. It's my history. It belongs to all of us. And we can learn so much if we just listen to people, mm -hmm. if we just listen to their stories, and if not um, have their experiences, at least try to understand their perspectives to give us a more complete picture of how history has evolved, you know? So I, I love that response because I think that's I think that's the right answer. I think that's exactly what we should all be striving for. But Dr. Butler, what do you say to students who who look like you and and who have a, a similar upbringing? What do you say to them, or or maybe I should even ask to their parents who are of the opinion that learning this history, which as you point out is all of our history, that learning about the role that their particular community may have played in that history and finding out just how unpleasant and quite frankly awful it was, uh, what do you say to people who push back on that and say, well, maybe that wasn't our history, but it was in our past. It's too emotional. It's too upsetting. And I don't want to feel guilty uh, talking or thinking about that history anymore. Well, I, I, I think that the point of education is not to make you feel guilty. Mm. It's not to make you feel comfortable either. Mm. The, the purpose of teaching history is to understand the past so that we can better understand the present. You, <laughs> um, I get kind of passionate about this because I've heard that. I've heard that, you know, well, just leave it in the past or, yeah. you know, in one of my first lectures at the University of Mississippi as a graduate student. It was on the civil rights movement because, you know, that's what I was writing my uh, my dissertation on. And I, I remember a student saying, why are you trying to start trouble when she left the class? Mm. And I'm like, you know, that, that I've never forgotten that. It's not starting trouble. It's educating. Um, it is wow. to let people know that our country is a work in progress. What makes our country great is the ability to change, to right wrongs, mm. and to understand that it's a constant struggle and that it takes people who are willing to sacrifice their livelihoods and 
often their lives to make this a better world than the one that they inherited. Mm. Um, And I don't think that there's any better American story. So for people who say that this is causing guilt or making people hate each other, they don't understand the point of education. And, you know, quite frankly, I I question uh, their motives when they reach these knee-jerk reactions without hearing what I have to say. Um, Because what I have to say is not my story. You know, it is our Hmm. story. And it's uh, a story that has been given to me by a variety of people who are much more brave than I am. So, um, you know, a question that I ask for people who say that this is, you know, we don't need to be talking about these things. What are you so afraid of? Why? Let's let's flip the uh, the table a little bit. Why should I not be talking about these things if it is a part of the American experience? And you claim to love America. You claim to love history. Maybe they don't love history. Maybe they love nostalgia. And there's a huge Ooh. difference between the two. Tease that out for us just a bit, if you would, sir. That just got my whole brain a little broken here. The difference between history you know, and nostalgia. I, I could hear your eyebrows raise, if that's a thing <laughs> in an interview like this, Lori. Um, yeah, wait, you, that's uh, one of the things that I tell my students, and they kind of pick up. History is endlessly fascinating, and one of the things I love about history is irony in history. Right, And we say we love history, but often what we love is a manufactured mythological understanding of history. In other words, we like parts of the past that make us feel good about ourselves. That's not the point of learning about the past. That's – history is complex. History is uncomfortable, especially the history of this country. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to inspire critical thinking, and and it's supposed to help you ask hard questions about truth. It helps you to determine fact from fiction, and what we realize is that in asking these hard questions, sometimes it's fiction that substitutes for fact, and I'll give you a great example of that. It's called the lost cause myth. This idea that after the Civil War, in the South in particular, we rewrote history. And when I say we, I mean white Southerners. This was not a war about slavery, the lost cause taught. This was a war about states' rights. The South didn't lose. The South was merely overcome. But Reconstruction was a period of Republican misrule in which the South was punished. And then we have Confederate mourning days, we have holidays, and we have statues that we place in public public places mm-hmm. to venerate the heroes of the Confederacy, a nation which, by the way, waged war against the United States of America. Right. So do we love history? Do we love heritage? Number one, when people say heritage, I, I ask whose heritage because it's not all of our heritage. That's you right. say you love the South, but do you love the South or do you love the Confederacy? There's a difference. Mm. So to me, that's a great example of when we say we love history, actually sometimes what we love is nostalgia because it makes us feel a certain way, which is ironic because now the people who don't want you to teach some of these subjects say that they don't want you to teach it because of the way that it makes people feel. 
feel. When history was originally rewritten in this region to make people feel better about a civil war that they created. Whew. My goodness, I, know, I would right? love to be at your <laughs> dining table on a Thanksgiving day. I'm sure you are that uncle that we all wish <laughs> had a full microphone all the time. Uh, because what you said, the difference between history and nostalgia, there is an emotional sense of fulfillment that the type of American history that we're talking about provides for a certain segment of the population. And that feeling uh, is sacrosanct. And that idea that we will protect the ability to relish in the, quote, beauty of that rewritten history or the nostalgia thereof, uh, as opposed to dealing with the harsh reality, really does lie at the heart of, I think, why you were not allowed to give that presentation. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad, not that you weren't allowed to give it, uh, but that it brought you at least to these airways because I think this is exactly what exactly. Uh, I want my audience to hear more of. You had mentioned earlier in our conversation the, the transition from de jure, segre de jure segregation to de facto segregation. And de jure, for those who were, did not have to sit through law school, uh, is what the law actually <laughs> says. It's, it's what is on the books. It's, it's what the, the you know, if, if you do this, then that will happen. This is the law. But de facto is what happens in practice. It's the the cultural right. habits and the patterns that the de jure law attempts to to regulate in some way shape or form Dr. Butler, can you talk with us about the very difficult task of going from being able to regulate de jure segregation, meaning we can change what the law says. The law said that if you were black, you could not do this. Now the law doesn't say that. But the de facto segregation says well, it doesn't matter what's on those books. You know that if you black and you come into this place that you are going to have problems. Can you talk with us about what we know or what we learn from history when we look at transitioning from a de jure uh, segregative space into a de facto segregative space and what we should perhaps be learning from those lessons that would help us to make different choices than the ones that were made the first few times we tried to make this transition. Wow, this is why you're so good at what you do. That question <laughs> is a great one. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's – okay, so number one, when we talk about this transition, it's nothing new. Um, I, I – encouraged people to read Dr. King's final book, which was actually out of print mm. for a time. Now, can you imagine Dr. King's final book was actually out yeah. of print in this country for mm. a period? And it's titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And he describes that transition. He basically says the easy part is over. Changing mm. the laws was the easy part. And in 1966, people, even within his own organization, Asked him, are you crazy? That was the easy part? He says, yes, the hard part is what's to come because now we have eliminated the law. That's easy. You changed the laws. Now we have to talk about education, equal education. Now we have to talk about schools. Now we have to talk about housing. We have to talk about the causes of urban unrest. We have to talk about the military-industrial complex. These things are not easy. We had to talk about police brutality and what it means now that you have a system that was built during the period of Jim Crow that now is being told you have to change some of your practices. Mm. Um, the thing with the uh, de jure de facto split as well is that the law now became weaponized. What I mean by that is that for people who wanted to say we are following the law it becomes, quote-unquote, colorblind. We don't say wow. that we're doing this because of race. 
Right. As a matter of fact, we've ended that practice. So yeah, did you see that law change you just law made? can't be racist. Wow. Hmm. The other thing that I would like to, to throw in, Lori, is something that in the in the early 1970s, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference labeled the Implementers' Revenge. And this is something that you know I think we all should think about. The Implementers' Revenge is this idea that the same people, the same people in positions of power, whether it's a school board, whether it's mayors, whether it's governors, uh, whether it's judges, these same people who resisted and denied – Equality were the ones who were put in charge of implementing equality when the law passed. Mm. So how do you think they they interpreted the law? As loosely as possible, primarily to keep the federal government out of our business. Right. That's where you get tokenism. That's where you get the most minimum application of the civil rights law just to satisfy the law. It's about the outcome, not the intent. The intent is to create a more equitable workforce, a more equitable society. The same people who did not want this are now put in charge of making sure that it met the minimum legal requirements possible, and they do. So do we really have systemic change? Do we really have a minority voice represented in places of public importance. Do we really have neighborhood creeds, redlining? Do we really have these things not responding to racial concerns? Absolutely not. So it's slippery. And, and like I said, the thing about the law is people can say with a straight face that, oh, race has nothing to do with this. Right. We're post-racial when we all know if you have two eyes and two ears, <laughs> that, or even if you have neither, <laughs> that race right. continues to be one of the most important topics in understanding who we are as a country, good, bad, and indifferent. Mm. <sighs> Dr. Butler, how can people follow you? How do they find out more about your writings and connect with the work that you're doing? Uh, you know, I, I happen to stumble upon uh, that amazing thread that you shared on Twitter. I am now following your work because I think this oh, well, is exactly the type of conversation we should have more of. You, you know, it's it's so funny, Lurie, because I never would have thought that, you know, I, I this would lead to conversation we're having right now um mm. i i do have a twitter presence and yeah i share historical facts and but i also share pictures of my dogs and <laughs> my, <laughs> my 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 son and daughter and uh i probably retweet too much about the university of mississippi's football program but that's okay i'm a complex person <laughs> but i'm i'm on twitter at dr m underscore dr underscore m butler um but yeah it, it, check out the the books that I've been just fortunate enough to write beyond integration, but another one is the story of one of the unsung civil rights heroes, in my opinion, that the South has produced. His name is Reverend H.K. Matthews, um, and his memoir, which I had the the fortunate, um, just a- absolute honor to write, to co-author, was uh, Victory After the Fall, the memoirs of H.K. Matthews, and his wow. stories incredible and it is a life 
that illuminates many of the problems that we've talked about when it comes to addressing systemic change. So, um, yeah, I've, I've written about Southern culture in terms of music. Um, my, my latest essay was on Isaac Hayes and black masculinity. Uh, so th- this topic is my passion because it represents people that have shaped history and are shaped by history, whose stories we may not know otherwise. Mm. Well, Dr. Butler, it has been really my pleasure to have you here with us today. I I think we've all learned a lot, and you've helped us to think through some things from a slightly different vantage point, which is always one of my primary goals here on the Larry Daniel Favors Show. I very much appreciate you being here. I wish you had gotten a chance to present this uh, amazing work. I have a feeling the educators, and by extension, their students and the communities that they work in, uh, would have been greatly benefited by it. Uh, But even that looks like we have way more work to do to make something like that come to fruition. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Michael Butler. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Hey, thank you. And if anything else, I hope that my experience demonstrates that we should never let a crisis go to waste. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Uh, And we'll be allies to you as well. Uh, And again, I wish we could have a microphone at your Thanksgiving dinner. I'm sure the conversation (laughs) is riveting. 